All right, and welcome again to American Dreamtime, the Robert Doc Barham Show. I am he, and I am not alone today. I'm actually here in the studio with somebody who is, uh, shall I call you a longtime friend? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's, fair. that's okay to that's do that? That's fair, yeah, All right. absolutely. I'm here with uh, Mark Matusoff. I'm actually really happy to be in the studio again, and I'm really happy to be sitting across from a physical human being and not doing a Zoom call, <laughs> nothing against Zoom, but it's yeah. just nice to be in person in WRLD and all of that good stuff. Yeah, like, like we're actually flesh and blood here, yes. Yeah, so nice to see you, and uh, thanks for coming all the way up here yep. to uh, have a conversation. You bet, you bet, man. This is great, uh, This is great, man. Nice, nice setup here, man. Thanks. I think it's really, it's just a lot of fun to be in here. And But before we go any further... I have told uh, our listeners your name, but I haven't told um, anything about you. So rather than me doing, who the heck are you? Well, I came here as a small <laughs> child from another planet. No, I, uh, I've been a, uh, I've known you for like what twenty five years, Doc. And uh, yeah, yeah I'm a, I've been a comic for uh, like, geez, uh, about thirty years or so. And uh, Road Warrior, and I know I've uh, I've known you here in the D.C. area, and also on the road. I worked with you. I know in Dayton at Wiley's uh, Comedy Club, uh, and I think we worked in Little Rock at the Looney Bin, and maybe one or two other places along the way. Yeah, I know we've worked in uh, in quite a few different places. Would you remember which one was the first one? So I guess I'm actually to interrupt you that yes. to answer answer the question. You are a professional stand-up comedian, amongst other things. You're amongst a man of many things. talents. Actually. Well, yes, I'm. Uh, Jack of all trades and master of none. That's right. 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 <laughs> do you do you remember the first uh, the first gig that we did together? I don't remember which one was the first one. It could have been here in the D.C. area. Maybe something that uh, Chip was booking or or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah, maybe a Chip Franklin gig. Like a one nighter. Like a one nighter. Okay, yeah. that's I think a we possibility. Did something like that. I don't remember which one it was. It was so many of them back in the day. So you said the Wileys in Dayton, right? Which uh, I have. Uh, uh, I have really strange memories now all mashed up because all my memories of Dayton were really fond and wonderful and good and humorous and that sort of stuff. And then all that strangeness happened out in, uh, in Dayton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but so Wiley's and also out in the, uh, in the middle of the country, Little Rock, Arkansas, right. For Jeff, for Jeff. Nice guy. Yeah. 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 And the club is still there. So that's good. So you started doing stand-up comedy before me, did you? Uh, 86. 1986? Yeah, it was the first time I went on stage. So that's actually a little, probably just a little bit before me. Probably, yeah. Your first time on stage was, what the, was that like? At the Comedy Cafe in uh, Washington, D.C. Remember that room? Dan Harris had that room. I up, do remember that uh, right room. Right above Archibald's, yep. uh, which it's itself is a uh, institution, a, uh, a, let me, how do we phrase this, the exotic dancing place, yes. Yes, it is a... Um, some people would call it a strip club. Other people would call it a <laughs> trying, yeah. A, I don't know your audience club. here. It's on the radio, so uh, yeah, it's a strip club. And but actually, when I I'd go down there, sometimes this might sound like a joke, and it's not a joke. It's actually true. Sometimes it would get really hot in the comedy club, right? And after I perform, I would be really, really hot, and then I'd actually go downstairs to the club in the basement just to enjoy the coolness of it. Yeah. Because it was cold down there, like the air conditioning it was. and it the was, temperature was always kept really low. Yeah, and, you remember, and that sounds like an excuse. Like, why were you down there? I was down I there was, for the air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the reason. Oh, right. look, look, there's a girl with no clothes on. Well, the air conditioning is comfortable. That's, yeah, that's all that matters. Nothing. Yes. I'm here for the thermostat. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that was you know, if you remember back in the day, also that club, you know, the, the guy, the guy who owned, he owned the whole building. He had those those uh, establishments in there, and uh, uh, the rule was if you're a comic, you were not allowed to mention the strip club. That was right, you know, on stage, you can get fired for that, and. It's not like the audience didn't know it was there. They had, they had to wait in line outside in front of the strip club to get to the comedy club. <laughs> so it's like the audience didn't know it was there, but that was the rule. Yeah, it doesn't, it never mentioned the strip club. Right. So you kind of it turns you into like uh, some character from Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, right? I see nothing. I hear nothing. <laughs> I know nothing. So uh, my, my experience with the uh, the ladies who danced downstairs was most of them were actually pretty pretty friendly. They like were. They, they, it wasn't really it wasn't really odd or strange or uncomfortable. It was just. They, to me, I saw them as performers just like we were. Exactly. That's all it was. They were dancers. They exactly. were doing what they did, and we were upstairs doing what we did and that sort of thing. And they were getting paid, uh, you know, probably 10 times what we made. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. more. Yeah. But yeah, I, was, uh, I remember one time my, uh, I was married at the time, and my, uh, the guy that owned the club, uh, yeah, my, he was really friendly with my wife. He loved my wife. She was, she was a very friendly person. I remember I came off stage once and went to the back of the room, you know, where the bar was, and... I didn't see my wife there. I said, okay, she must have gone to the bathroom or something. So I'm waiting back there. The other guy was on stage. The headliner was on. I don't remember who it was. And then I'll see my, I see my wife come up the back, back staircase and, and, and sits down. She says, that was weird. I said, what? Well, he, I said, the owner, he, he took me down. So he's, he says, Karen, I want to show you something. So, so took her down to the basement, down, down, to the, down to the strip club, and sat her down. He says, and he, and he gave me a free drink and then left. I said, wait, wait, wait. He gave you a free drink? <laughs> Those are the kind of perks that actually really mattered sometimes, didn't they? Yeah. The yeah. free drink, yes. the free meal, well, off the, comic the side ride of the menu, yes. to the club perhaps, yes. or a ride yeah. from the airport, or yeah. what, are the, what, are, what were some of the other, there's a laundry list of perks that um, some people who weren't in that world or aren't in that world would, would know about. Can you think of some of the other perks? Uh, well, sometimes it was, uh, you know, depending on the club, sometimes you would get free drinks. Yeah, uh, the free or, drinks or, occasionally, or, or, uh, or a free meal off the comic side of the menu, right? Which is usually something fried and uh, definitely the comics, healthy. The comic so, side yeah. of the menu. Yeah, it's always yeah. There was always the prime rib over here, but oh yeah, comics. You can order this. You get the fried mozzarella sticks or whatever this 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 slider, and yeah, it's always it always almost unhealthy. But you know, free food's free food. Right, right. When you're on the road, yeah. So that was your first gig. Was it a was yeah. it a an open mic night, or was it an actual paid gig? No, it was open mic night. I said open mics for a while, and I, I remember the one thing. Um, it was like I, you know, I went to a few shows just to see them. I said I, I can do that. And went back uh, beginning in 1986, January 86. I said all right. And I went. I, I signed up, and I got I got a spot, and the, and, the, and the room was full, and I had a really good set. But I remember the one thing that struck me is, is how how bright the lights were. I wasn't prepared for that. I got up on stage, and the lights were blinding. And I don't know why. When you when you see as an audience, you see the the comic on stage in any right. club. And it doesn't look like it's that bright, but when you're up there looking out, it just it is like headlights in your face. Yeah, yeah. It can be pretty blinding when you are yeah. you're on stage and you try to keep your you keep your uh, sight trained on something other than the the blasting lights. Yeah, and I try to I, pick people out of the audience or I wasn't sure look where, at the whole audience. And I wasn't sure. Once. I wasn't prepared for that, so I wasn't sure where to look. I mean, I had a good set. I mean, for you know, first time ever on stage, and then then I probably bomb the next 15 times up you know i said i know i could do this i did right the first time so so yeah what the first time up how did it go compared it went great. to oh, it did yeah. it yeah i mean uh, i guess comparatively in, in my mind said that, yeah it was a really good set uh five minute set and probably if i ate it on the first show i might never have done it again i said oh, that was embarrassing but i did it didn't really well it but after i tried to recapture that it wasn't working and uh, you know i finally got back to it but the next uh, bunch of times up there I just i just didn't do well but i said i know i could do this because the first time i did great so your first time, you did five minutes, you're at the Comedy Cafe, yeah. and you're on that stage, which is that 
that uh, what was it about two feet high and yeah, well, it's it not a very big stage. No, it was not a big stage, and the room was like long. It was a, it was a long, so, it was a yeah, wide room, long, it, rectangular. It went, right, it was like long and rectangular. And you're on one on, on the long side, and then you know it's only like you know one what, one row of tables back, but everything is like way off either left or right is where you're playing. You know, so it was uh, kind of an odd dynamic, also. Yeah. So your first time, how did, now? What did you do to prepare for that first gig? I wrote uh, I wrote jokes. I, sp- I spent a couple of weeks uh, writing writing jokes. That whole you know nothing I'm pretty proud of now. I probably would never do it again. But it was uh, it was a bit about going to Catholic school, which I didn't even do. I never went to Catholic school, but I wrote a Catholic school bit. You did? Did you were were you saying like you, I was Catholic and going yeah, to, Catholic went to Catholic school? school and... Yeah, it was a tough school. You know the sister's name. Remember uh, we had Sister Dominic. She won the uh, I think she won the uh, Olympic powerlifting. Uh, oh, the uh, the Vatican powerlifting competitions. I had a bunch of jokes, but you know. Uh, it was it was yeah it was a, it was a tough Catholic school joke bit you know it was like five minutes of that. Oh, so it's just one ch- one chunk on the whole. For the most part, five minutes. Yeah, that's, what I, that's all I remember. My I'm Catholic sure I did school other, days. Yeah, I think I, I ran a few more a few more jokes about other things, but that's that's what I remember doing. Wow. Yeah. So what what was it that that originally got you to say I'm gonna do stand up comedy? I don't know. I went. I'd taken a few dates. Uh, just uh, you know, back in there was it was very open mic. It was. I mean, it was a place to go. It peeped, the, the room was full at open mic nights around the, you know, there was only a couple of clubs in town. There was a cafe and there was Garvin's. That was about it. And when the uh, Crystal City Comedy Club, those are the only three clubs in the area. And uh, I, went, I, went, I went to a couple of the shows, took dates there, and uh, dates were saying, yeah, you're, you're funnier than some of the guys we saw. And that was like, put in my mind. It's something I always wanted to try. So, ah. yeah, and that was, yeah, I mean, you're I funnier a, than they are. Yes, yes, I know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all the encouragement I needed. It's something I always wanted to try anyway, and uh, with that little bit of encouragement, yeah, so I went back and figured out, you know, watched a few more shows, and then I signed up, and that's how, it, that's how this nightmare started, yeah. Now, how long did it take you to write that first set? Did it take you long? Uh, two or three weeks. That was it? Yeah. And then your second set, did you go right back the, the following week? Uh, oh, yeah, I was going back every week, yeah. And, and, then, and then took you how long before you got that first paid gig? About, uh, probably about a year. Yeah? Yeah. And then, so now you were working at the same time? You yeah, had another a, job at the same yeah, time? Yeah, I was. I uh, have a degree in engineering. I was working as an aerospace engineer for the uh, Defense Department at the time. Wow. Yeah. So now after a year, you get that gig, yeah. or you get the, the gig, the paid gig. Yeah. How long did it take for the steady gigs? Um, it, it grew a little bit at a time. You know, with your first year, a few more gigs here and there, and then the second year, a few more paid gigs here and there. I think I got a, I think Anita Fletcher was the first person that ever hired me for a road gig down in uh, Virginia Beach. Ah, okay. Yeah. And uh, that was like, yeah, I think the next year I emceed a show down there. And so I was getting some paid gigs, but it was, I think about four years in is when I decided to make the jump and do it full time. Four years? Yeah. Ah. So you kept the, you kept the job in aerospace engineering for four years. Right. So the transition, was it easy? Was it well, I planned ahead and, you know, I just saved up as much money and tried to minimize my expense as much as possible because it's, uh, it's, you know, it was a big jump in or jump down in income. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was like jumping from a train going 60 miles an hour to a train going 30 miles an hour. Right, right. <laughs> as far as income goes. And, you know, it's not a steady income. You know, there's, uh, you, you look at a calendar, looks full, and then all of a sudden something drops out or you weren't able to book that week or this month looks bad. So it's, you know, you learn how to manage money as best you can. It's a comic. You know that as well as I do. Well, know. that's not, that's really wise. You spent the, that time saving up your money. Now, yep. now, did that influence your choice of work? 
because you had the money and no. you didn't necessarily have to work to make the money, that well, once, sort of thing? Once I went full-time, no, I took, no, I, then I said, okay, that, I have to depend on income. So I took, I took anything and everything that, I, that was offered to me. You know, and then I, just kept, just did what you could to keep your, keep your savings? As much as I could. I was, you know, I was, it was slowly, slowly depleting to kind of, you know, keep things, uh, you know, pay my bills. So, uh, yeah, I planned for that. But, uh, yeah, went, like, full-time. It was, uh, I took everything and anything was offered to me. You know, there was some, you know, you've done some of these terrible gigs, but, you know, it's, it's money, and you learn. It's a, I always learned that it was a learning experience. Yeah, some of them, it, it's, looking back, they were not good gigs, per se. Like, they weren't necessarily fun. Right. But they were, even though they weren't necessarily fun, they were still rewarding in a sense. Yeah. At least for me, because it was an opportunity to do something that you really love doing. Right. And also, for me, it was an opportunity to find out, can I actually do well in this particular instance? Right. Like, given this audience on this night, at this time, in this town, in this club, given these circumstances of this set, lights, mic, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing, can I make this material work here, too? Yeah, and that's it. The more different types of venues you work... The more you learn what what works in different venues and how you how you adapt to different situations, so everything's a learning experience. It makes you a stronger comic, even though sometimes you look at it after you walk out of the sh- out of the club after one of those shows, go, oh, man, <laughs> give me the gun. <laughs> yeah, you, you know those 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 shows. But yeah, you learn something from them. Yeah, there were there were um, a number of gigs where I uh, went back to the hotel room or wherever it was that I was staying and thought. Why Maybe I, I should pack this in. Why and am I doing this find to myself? Something else. Yeah. yeah. Why am I? Why am I putting myself through? This? Why am I going through this? Why should I continue to do this? And then sometimes I pick up the phone and call somebody and and uh, talk to them, and they they remind me just keep doing it. Yeah, and actually, as yeah, as comics, the the really bizarre and and crummy gigs are the ones that are actually the most fun to talk about after after the fact. Oh yeah. They have the good stories behind. Oh, those are the ones that have the great stories. Yeah. They, they so when you worked um, at in the Washington D.C. area first. Yeah. yeah. Which was there a direction that you went? You said I worked any and all gigs that I get could get. Did you go north, south, east, west, everywhere, every direction? Yeah, I mean, I started with a relatively small geographic circle. You know, uh, right off the bat, because you have to network and find out where the gigs are and who books them. So I was pretty much working. You know, the first couple of years more or less between Philadelphia and, uh, like, Virginia Beach, you know, Baltimore. It's all one market, pretty much. Baltimore, D.C., and uh, Virginia Beach and Richmond are all pretty much like the same market. All the comics, we all know each other. We know the clubs. So that's how you network. And I started picking up some gigs, like, in, you know, Pennsylvania. And after a while, you know, moves, somebody told me, hey, you know, uh, like, Sharon Rurick books rooms in uh, Ohio. So then you pick up rooms in Ohio. So that, that's how it works. I started, remember started work, spa- working for Sharon. Yep. That was a. I, maybe, uh, I each a maybe, maybe I did a sharing gig with you. Maybe that's what. Did you work? It was uh, Youngstown. I remember there was right. a room there. Was it a. Was it Holiday, Holiday Inn? Inn? Holiday yeah. Inn? Yeah. yeah. Like a weekend. It was a weekend. Thir- yeah. Sort of a Friday, Saturday, or Thursday, Friday, it Saturday? Was a Friday, Saturday, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I, I, that was like one of the. That might have been one of her really good rooms there. Yeah. And she had some one nighters that were that very, were usually trying to tie on there if she could. Kind of varied thing. in quality, yes. Yeah. The so. room one nighters weren't bad. She had that she had that room up in remember that room up in Painesville, Ohio. Did you ever do that one? There was like this old theater or something, and you stayed in this creepy house, 
behind it that the guy owned and he had his German shepherd that pooped all over the house. And, <laughs> and you stayed in this unfinished attic. The comic stayed up in this unfinished attic where, uh, um, it, it, uh, seriously, it looked like, like, looked like Anne Frank would hide up there. It was one of these types of places. I mean, it was no, it was, no, it was just bare beams, and that's all there was. And that's that was just, that was where you stayed. Yeah, there was, and it was okay. I don't think I did that one. Oh, you're lucky. The Painesville, Ohio, sounds familiar, but that the uh, the board, yeah, that didn't sound like where I stayed. Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, the clubs and the one I did. You take whatever they give you as far as accommodations. That's one of the perks, if you will, as a comic. At, for the most part, at least back in that day, you always got accommodations, almost always. And they weren't always great, but at least you didn't have to shell out money. Because I know people in bands uh, often don't get accommodations at all. You know, it's just five guys. They don't, they don't, you know, they'll, they'll have to split a hotel room between the five of them. They have to pay for it. And at least comics, you know, for the most part, we, get, we used to get a room. You know, sometimes they were in a condo, which weren't too bad. Sometimes in condos that were, looked like murder scenes. Yeah. Yeah, there were some uh, very questionable condos. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever work uh, uh, that, that place in uh, uh, Cuyahoga Falls? That, I, I know I worked in Cuyahoga Falls. Yeah, I know that, that. That's when you stayed kind of behind the club, I mean, under the club. The, had, oh, you mean that that's a uh, hilarities, yes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the, the layout of that room was so unusual. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how they came up with that, but it was... You had a stage, and then stage right, the audience was probably maybe, yeah. what, a foot be- foot off, foot right, below yeah. where you were standing? Right, yeah, there, there was like regular... Yeah. But if you were to walk off front, the front and center stage, yeah. or stage left, yeah, drop down you like would have dropped six... To eight feet, yeah. Right, right, and the, like, that was, like the audience was sort of like in the pit, Yeah, and that was the other half of the audience, so you're, you're playing to this club where half of the people are six feet down, and the other half are just off to your right. Yeah. And then we stayed in that, that condo was like attached kind of under the club in the back. There, there were no windows. Yeah. And it was like a sensory deprivation tank. I, I think that was the, um, that, that might have been one of my first sort of long week gigs that was on the road. And yeah. I was, and I didn't get paid a lot, but boy, was I happy to do that. Was, I was well, happy to have that The shows actually gig. went well in those shows. They had those two, uh, uh, it was run by those two Palestinian guys. Is that who it was? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember their names? Pete and Tony. That, okay. I, that <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> that was them. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. And I, but I remember that, that that was a, that was a fun club. It was. There were nice people there and the crowds were actually usually pretty good. They, they were, were, they were really invested in the show. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, then, and it was kind of neat that you could go through the back door. Right. And then you were like in your accommodations. Yeah, but then they would deadbolt you in. Remember from the, from the <laughs> you walk in a, there was this deadbolt you into this into this into this thank God there was another door to get out because right. the, the club actually burned down. The double glass doors. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there were no windows in the place. We used to call it the bunker. <laughs> and there was uh, if I remember there's the um the family room area that had like a big big play pit yeah. where you could hang out and watch television, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but those are the fun things to talk about, you know, as comics on the road. The uh, just the miserable accommodations that sometimes make sleeping under a bridge look attractive. Yeah, now it was a lot of fun. Like the Cuyahoga Falls room—that's the place where I had heard things like people would joke about. You go into these cities, and and people would have the the jokes about the town or the city. That was a place where I remember uh, they would say like the the river actually caught on fire. Yeah, I had heard is that, that. Is that yes. right? Yeah, yeah. 
It's the kind of thing that could actually ignite. Yes. Now, yeah, apparently, there was a, a source of something civic, like it was so polluted and civic petroleum pride. and those kinds of things. <laughs> a flaming river. Yeah. Yeah. So every yeah. T- every town, every city has that kind of. So you went and you did hilarities up in Cuyahoga Falls. Oh yeah. You yeah. worked for Sharon Rerick. Oh yeah. That's in Ohio. You did a lot. Of, there was a lot of work in Ohio. It was. That was a, like that state. Surprisingly, I just had a lot of a lot time, of work in it at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So after you, what were some of the other places that you worked? That you got out to Dayton, Ohio? Or, uh, yeah, Dayton. I worked with you in Dayton. I was there quite a few times for, uh, for you know, Wiley's. And uh, we worked, um, there was other places I worked in Ohio. I think there was something up in Lima I did, Toledo. I used to do Toledo, some stuff around Detroit. Um, and then uh, I think, what was her name? Uh, Roz Turner was booking stuff in Milwaukee. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. It's a great way. It was a great way just to see the country up close. It really yeah. is. It's just like there's something about getting up in the morning, at least for me. Let's say you're, you're at the hilarities, right? Yeah. You finish your gig, and you've got another gig coming up. You load up everything in your car, yep. and you get your, back then, you, you get your map out. Yeah, yeah, there was, it, that's what it was, maps. Yeah, so you get your, like, AAA triptych or your map out, and uh, I guess this is sort of dating us, but yeah. um, then you, you get uh, your car gassed up, you get your food, and then you head out on the road, and when you're on the road... What do you do to occupy your time? You listen to radio or you yeah. listen to tapes or CDs, books, things like that? Even almost pre-CDs. I mean, CDs were just coming out when I was going to Rose. Right. Yeah, right. cassette tapes, yeah. But that was one of the nice things is you get to, now you're going to drive for, what, four, five, six, six hours, hours, sometimes ten hours or more, and you Some, get to see the country. Sometimes you work in these small towns, too. It's like I used to work for uh, Ken Muller out in... Uh, Iowa, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. I mean, I, I, it's something I probably would never have seen that part of the country had I not uh, been doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I did some work for, for Ken as well. Yeah. Yeah, I got to see. I mean, how many, I, how many states did you end up getting to, to work in and uh, get to see? By, by now, I think it's 43 or so. I think right 43? 43 or 40, 42 or 43. I know it's over 40. I think for my count, it was about 40 states, somewhere yeah. around there. I got yeah. to, did you ever get out to Alaska? Never did Alaska. No? Alaska, Hawaii are two of the ones I've never done. I never did Hawaii, but I did do Alaska. I wanted to do Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, Alaska was, each, I guess each one of those, this sort of new city, new state, new club, each one of them has like a special something to it. Yeah. Because you're, you're building out your career, so to speak, and you're getting to see all of America and you're meeting new people. Right. And you're seeing each one of the rooms was different and distinct. Unless you went to some place like maybe an improv or a, a bone where they were really careful about making right. sure that you're working a very similar kind of room. Right. You know, layout right. and tables and everything. But, but you know, the standalone mom and pop clubs were the, those were the most fun to work, you know, because mm-hmm. you weren't treated like a piece of furniture. And then, you know, they, they were, get the staff stayed there every time you're back and you got to see these, these towns that you never would have seen. Well, now, um, when I did Alaska, I was there, I'm trying to remember who I did, who I performed with, who the comedians, I thought that it might have been Mitch Hedberg. Wow. I know Brian Mallow was one of the people. Okay. Who, and I remember that I had sort of lobbied to be able to work Alaska. It was a little bit like having a map on a wall and putting yeah. push pins in the different states going, all right, there's another state I, that I was able I to work big, in. And, I have a big map where I put push pins in every town I've worked in. Oh, really? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, um, I worked in Alaska, and that's, I remember there were certain things about that place. Like, um, that was the first place that I went to where people 
started their car while they were at, in the bar. Because <laughs> it was so cold? It was so cold that that's the first time I saw the remote control car starter. And that was like, that was a big wow. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd never seen that kind of snow before. And people who were that, that unaffected by that kind of snow. Yeah. Then I'd go to another city like Nashville, and they'd, they would have a, a small amount of snow, and it seemed like they're ready to shut the city down. Oh, yeah. 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 It's like, 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 like DEFCON 5, you know, it's like, <laughs> when the snow's in Nashville. So what, what for you, when you, um, when you went out on the road, you just, do you went out first as an MC? I started an MC, I mean, and then uh, did feature work, division uh, for, for the layman out there. That's the kind of three, three comic show. Uh, feature act is the second guy out of three. And uh, started headlining, yeah. You know, when you were MCing, were you, how much time were you usually using? 15. About 15 minutes? Yeah. And did you have, um, what, was your, what was your take? Like, what's your, if you were to say what an MC is and what he does, what's your take on it? Well, MC, it's, it's, it's ironic that it's, it's arguably the toughest part of the show because you're going up cold to an audience. You have no idea. They're not even an audience. They're just a bunch of people sitting in a room, and you have to make them an audience. And ironically, in this, Canada does it differently, but in the United States, they take like the least experienced guy to do that, and which can, can, can start to kind of start to show off on a bad note if it's, you know, somebody who's not, not a good comic, not experienced, and you're trying, to, you're trying to take this crowd. It's a learning experience how to be a good MC. You know, the, I think, I forget which headliner told me this many years ago. It might have been Steve Scrovan, who says something to me at the, yeah, it's not my job to go up there and kill. My job is to make them an audience uh, as an MC. And, and, and come out with the attitude, hey, this is, this is, this is my show, welcome to my place, uh, the other comics are my guests, and, and kind of you know, have, that, have that vibe without saying it that way. And, and when, once you start approaching it that way, it was a little bit different. Yeah, I, for me, it was interesting to watch how an MC could really make a show. Or ruin a show. Or, yeah, if that, if that MC had some real presence and had some good material and was good at bringing someone on stage and working with the crowd it it totally made the show it yeah. made it like a big one big package right and it felt like here's the opening you know here's the next piece here's the next piece and we're closing it out and thanks for the show yeah, i mean thank it just you, felt thank you excellent out. exactly exactly and a, a good mc yeah well just it's it's you know the the analogy that someone told me way back which i always tried to keep in mind as i learned things was you know Pushing a rock, a big rock. You ever heard that one? That's a huge like rock. Like Sisyphus, you mean? Pushing like, a rock uphill? Yeah, well, except it'll roll back down on you. you know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sisyphus. No, but you have a big rock that you need to, you can't just go up there and shove this rock. You have to kind of start rocking it back and forth to get some momentum. Then it'll start, then you, then you can push it and roll it. You know, rolls back and forth. And, and that's what an audience is like a lot of times. They're, they're, they're not an audience. A bunch of people sit in a room. It's your job to make them focus on the stage and get them in the mood to laugh and understand what's happening here. And, you know, it's like pushing them. You don't want to jump in too deep into your material, which I learned the hard way, you know, just dive into material as an MC right off the bat. You got to, you know, kind of warm them up a little bit so, they're in, so they understand that they're going to be listening to material. Well, now, when, it, when you got very solid at being the, the MC, the master of ceremonies, yeah. was there a point at which you got that, um, you got to blow people away stuff? You know, like you got to sure. blow, blow this guy away so you can do the next spot? 
You know that that meme or that yeah that story think, where yeah I know I, I don't you got to put the heat on the next guy so I'm you can sure come back I, next time. I'm sure I had yourself that attitude at some point, but for the most part, no. I mean, I just I just I just try to prove it on my own merits. I'm a strong enough act. Let me move up because the money was better, you know. And then you know thirty. Then you get to do thirty minutes instead of fifteen. And even that's a learning experience. Going from fifteen to thirty, it's a it, it was a big trying to put together a thirty minute set was a different dynamic than doing a 15-minute set to warm. You're, now you're going up to a warmer crowd, but now you got to do 30 minutes and, and, and carry it home. And um, Yeah, that was also a learning experience. Every time you move up, you, you learn something and learn how to pace yourself. Yeah, for, I mean, I, I remember that I wanted to do really well as an MC, and in the beginning it was, I just wanted to be funny. Yeah. And then I got, but I got a lot of experience when, uh, because I went to school at Virginia Tech mm-hmm. and opened, did that open mic there that I started. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, did that open mic, and that gave me a lot of practice as an MC, and I began to learn through trial and error what worked and what didn't work, and, and I had a sense of, like, uh, I guess, well, because it was the show that I was producing and hosting, I had a sense of responsibility for everybody to do well. Yeah. And I took yeah. that on the road eventually, and then uh, I, I think also because I came from, from uh, I was in school for theater arts and performing arts. I saw the show. I didn't see it so much as like three individual guys, like I'm just a guy going on stage doing my thing and that's it. I saw it as a, as a whole show and it's, yeah. a, it's an ensemble. It's a, there's well, it this opening guy, there's this middle guy, there's this headliner guy. I mean, how did, how did you see the whole show? I think along the way it evolved. I mean, at first you're you're all about yourself. You want to you want to be the the funniest on the show. I think, and I'm, I'm not saying about trying to blow people. But you want to really kill. But I saw I started to see myself as part of part of here's my part of the show. I I'm I'm not supposed to kill. I'm I'm supposed to you know actually supposed to be funny if I can, but you know warm up the crowd. In the middle you're supposed to be funny and and do a solid set. But you're part of an entire thing. And even then you know as an as a middle act, yet you don't want to really blow the the headliner off the stage. It's not about that. You know. Uh, I know that's that's kind of the mindset sometimes. Well, I'm not going to move up unless I blow the headliner off the stage. Right. And sometimes that happened. I mean, I, I did it, but it wasn't it wasn't intentional. It was just I just I'm just doing my show. But and I remember saying, do you ever, do you ever work with Kozak, the uh, magician? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kozak. I remember Kozak. I was working with him at Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, which was a great club. Yeah. And I remember Kozak used to come up, and I was uh, I was featuring, and somebody else uh, they had a local guy I'm saying, but he he made a point to say, hey, let's keep it going for my co-stars tonight, not not the other guys. He said. You know, co-stars of the show. So he he put us on the same level yeah. as co-stars, and that I, that always stuck with me. That that was yeah, we're all kind of co-stars. Yeah, there, I I agree because I I remember something similar when I worked with Kozak and the the uh, the gig that comes to mind was up in the the northeast at uh, a club up there, and it was uh, somewhere like a, it was in New York, Albany or somewhere around mm-hmm. there. And he was the crowds just loved him. Oh yeah, and uh, I came in and. I think, uh, let's see, I was middling, and then he, what I noticed is that when he came on stage, he made a point of connecting with the audience and making sure that the audience showed some appreciation for this person who'd just been on stage. Exactly. Yeah. And that was really professional and really classy. And the way that he did it, it came across as, as that, and it seemed to just sort of raise the quality of the show entirely. Yeah. And when he did it, it was like a complete thing in of itself. And then he did, you know, his show, which is this huge, yes, really funny yeah, spectacle great, of a show. It, yeah, he's a great magician. Uh, yeah. Sleight of hand guy. 
And the problem with working with him, I, I worked with him several times over the years, sometimes for a week, so I'd see him like eight shows. And I started, you know, with sleight of hand, you know, oh, where'd that come from? And then I, I couldn't help but start looking, okay, I knew which bit was coming up, and now I'm looking like 30 seconds ahead. Oh, man, that's where he pulled the rock out of. Oh, man, that's where that went. You know, now we see where he's putting his hand to get this thing. For, but, you know, when you see it the first time, because I, I, I felt disappointed. I was kind of seeing what he was, what he was doing to, to create the illusions. Because I was looking, you know, I, I knew it was happening already. So I was looking, I was looking preemptively at where, <laughs> where the where the uh, joke, uh, where the where the trick was coming from. So you're you're in a sense you're going to the punchline before the punchline. Yeah, yeah. He but, actually, did, but that did that it took away something for you? Well, kind of, yeah. I mean, not not really. I still appreciated the art form, but I felt disappointed. I figured out where the you know, yeah, but just by looking, you know, seeing uh, you know what what he's doing over here while he's pulling something out of here to to to, to make it. Uh, uh, appear or disappear. Right. There's a slight, a slight of hand. Although he had a great, uh, he, inadvertently, he kind of told, ta ta he was a, he taught me how to write jokes in a way. Because um, he was trying to figure out, I remember sitting with, in the condo with him, he was trying to figure out uh, a new illusion that he says. He says, yeah, I'm trying to figure this out. And he says, you know, uh, it's like writing a joke. He says, you have to hide this before you can produce that. It's like a punchline. You know, you the punchline is the, is, is the, uh, is the, is the, uh, is the payoff here, but then you have to hide where the. I said, yeah, that is how you write a joke. You start with the you start with the punchline, work backwards. Right, and, like a reverse engineering. Right. How do I how do I hide it so they don't see the punchline coming? Which is that he, I said, and as he explained it to me, says, yeah, that is how to write jokes, isn't it? And he did inadvertently kind of uh, got me thinking about it, that that way. Yeah. But that's the thing I think about stand up comedy, at least for me, is that um, the the I read some books and things like that mm -hmm. on on how to write. Yeah comedy writing secrets and things like that. And I think I may have gotten a copy of Judy Carter's book, one of her early yeah, books back, and that yeah. sort of thing, Saul Saxon, Melvin Hellitzer and that Never sort of Hellitzer, stuff. Yeah. But it, there was something about learning on the road too that was really special, like just learning little things that could make such an enormous difference in your sense of self-confidence as a performer and also your, your performance. Yeah. Like, yeah. like those sorts of things. Yeah, I watched, I make it a point to watch every single person I work with Every show, if I could, you know, if I'm there for a week and there's three of us, I made a point to watch everybody, no matter what, because I could always learn something from some, from from every from anybody. There's always something to be learned, maybe something good or maybe something bad. I, I hope I don't do that, you know, uh, some annoying thing, some guy doing his act, you know, some annoying, I don't know, gesture or tick or something he said. I said, okay, I, I hope I don't do that. So it's it's things you can learn both ways, good and bad, and and it's it, it was it, I, you know, I. I looked at it and says, man, I can't believe they're actually paying me to watch this much, this much comedy. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's something, you know, when you watch a performer the first time and you go back and you watch them do the show again. Yeah. The second time, many times comics, you'll see them do the same jokes yeah. and they, they will, sometimes they'll vary the joke. Yeah. They'll change like the rhythm or the pacing, the timing, the, yeah. the some of the verbiage and things like that. But some guys that will do the same joke, they'll do the same joke, the same bits, the same set, that kind of thing. Right. And it's interesting to see that because you get, it's like you get a chance, it's almost like reading a book two or three times. You get a little bit more out of it each time. Right. And you're, you're learning, 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 and then hopefully applying it to your own self. Yeah, say, so why is that working? What's, okay, what's about this joke? Why is, why is that working? And I was, is, it, is it the joke itself? Is, it, is the way this guy's performing it? Is it, uh, you know, so it's, it, yeah, it's a learning experience. It's, it's a little bit, sometimes it's like solving a riddle or a puzzle. Yeah. You know, get to watch and, ah, oh, I see, that's what it is. It's right where he puts that vocal inflection right there. That's what that's seems the funny to do. That's the part, yep. That's what seems to really nail it. Yeah, absolutely. 
So were there, so you, you worked with Kozak. We oh, yeah. both know Kozak. Yeah. And uh, who were some other, some guys out there when you, when you started working that really got your attention? Uh, who were some comics? Well, Male or female or? Well, when I first started, I mean, it's, it's mostly comics that uh, the listeners probably wouldn't, never, might not have ever heard of. You know, some of the best comics I've worked with are ones that are relatively unknown to the public. I mean, they're, they're working comics. I mean, in the area, I mean, Roger Mercick. Roger, yeah. Yeah, was a great joke writer, still is. Um, Brett Leak. Oh, Brett, yeah. You know, Bob Summerby. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, there's that, you know, Jeff Caldwell. I always enjoy you know, watching these guys, and, and uh, I felt privileged. I get to know these guys as friends. I, I sometimes look back and say, wow, what, what an opportunity to know such great comics just on a, on, a, on a, just a camaraderie, you know. Well, there's, what, there's four guys right there. Yeah. Roger Bursick and Jeff Caldwell, Brett Leak. All of them very funny, yeah. and all of them really different from one another. They are. They really are. different. They are. And all of them, you know, relatively unknown. I mean, Brett leaked the Tonight Show a few times, but still relatively unknown to the public, but a great comic. Yeah, Brett, it's, and I, you know, Brett was also one of the kindest guys. Still is, yeah. I've ever met. Yeah. I mean, he was such a kind, kind guy. Yeah, and for the audience listening, Brett is, uh, is afflicted with uh, muscular dystrophy, uh, which is, it's progressively getting, getting worse over the years. But he's, uh, you know, he just looks right past that. It's just, and, you know, what, he, what he says is so, is so brilliant and just well-spoken and thought out, the thing, things he talks about. Where, do you know where Brett lives these days? Yeah, I think he's still down in uh, Louisa County, Virginia. Oh, he is? Yeah, I, th- I believe okay. he still lives there, yeah. He's someone who, uh, where, you know, there was a thing you would learn, which is to make sure that you had a really solid opening joke. Yeah. And if you could make a joke that was something personal about you, that was always a good idea, too. Yeah. And I remember watching him at the what was that, the Rono Comedy Club. Oh yeah. And he came on stage, and he was not in a wheelchair or anything like that. And he came on stage and um, uh, he said something to the effect, "I want to let you all know that I have a I have a handicap, degree in economics." Right, right, <laughs> right. Because it's obvious, you know, you need help getting on the stage. Right. And, you know, and he, and he walked. You know, it was, you know, just it's a little bit off putting when you first see him if you've never seen him before. But right. But he, he just. You know, he addressed it, and that's all he talked about, the, you know, the, uh, the MD, and then he move on. So when did you go from MC to, do you remember do, getting the first feature gig? Feature spot? Yeah, the first, I must have been maybe a couple of years after I, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe a year after I kind of first started doing this full time, or, or right around that time, you know, because it's hard to make a living as an MC. So I was probably starting, to, I was doing feature work, yeah. How long? Well, you know, uh, I was four years in, so for probably the first year I, I went full-time. Oh, I okay. I said this is the time to do it because I'm starting to get feature work. I can kind of make a living as a feature act, at least at that time. So you were doing that? That's the 25, 30 minutes, that sort right, of thing? Right, And uh, now, what, what are some, I'm kind of curious, actually. I'm glad we're having this conversation because we're getting into some of the details we didn't get to get into before or that we haven't gotten into, some of them. Um, what are some of the clubs that really stood out for you? Well, we mentioned uh, Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh. Uh-huh. It was a wonderful club. I worked uh, a couple of the Funny Bones. Uh, Omaha was always a lot of fun. Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, at the time, was, it was a really good club. I enjoyed working uh, the Comedy Cafe in Milwaukee. Um, and there was some one-nighters. I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a room out in... I love the room that it was. There was like a three-night room in Rapid City, South Dakota uh-huh. that Ken used to book. That was that was that was always a lot of fun. Plus, it was a great part of the country to go visit. Yeah, yeah, going out that that was uh, going out there to the Dakotas, 
and Montana yeah. was an amazingly beautiful territory. Oh, yeah. That, that, yeah. Those states were incredible. Yeah, I always made it a point when I was someplace I've never been, any place I've been before, to, to go out and not just sit in my hotel room. I'd you know, go out and, you know, when, when's, when am I ever going to be out here again to see Mount Rushmore or uh, the Badlands or the Crazy Horse Monument, you know, or, or the Devil's Tower. So I always made it a point to do day trips, you know, and, and try and take advantage of the fact that I'm, I'm out here working, but during the day I can go do things. Yeah. That was like for me going going out there and being able to see, for example, the Badlands yeah. and the Devil's Tower, driving by there, or Mount Rushmore, or all yeah. sorts of stuff out there. It was just I remember? Did you ever work with uh, Marnie Voss, T. Marnie Voss? Very funny. Very funny. She's out of Nebraska, but I remember she had a joke about the Badlands, where she's she's driving with some New York comic that was driving across South Dakota, and it says Badlands ahead, and the guy goes, "Really? It gets worse." <laughs> <laughs> this is nothing in South Dakota. T. Marnie Voss, if you have not seen her, check her out because she is so funny. She she has she's someone who stood out. Yes. I was probably I'm seeing when I first saw her. And she was such a sweet person. Yeah. But her style of delivery yeah. is really unique. Like yeah, the, I can't her just, rhythm and style was something was just like you can't really copy it. It was so uniquely her. Yeah, I could yeah, I can't even describe it. It was it was it, great delivery. I was I loved working with Marnie. She had just just a just a just a sweet woman. I wonder where she, I wonder where she is. Is she still there? Do you I think? believe she's still in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, is so she still doing stand-up comedy? She has a lot of corporate stand-up or uh, I guess motivational speaking that's humorous. I think that's what she does. Well, so tell her that if you talk to her, tell her that I said hi, we'll or uh, yeah. or if you've got her contact information, give it to me so I can say hi to yeah, her. Yeah, I haven't spoken to her in a while, but I think I believe she's still there. So now, what for you? What was like a what was a peak experience in stand-up comedy? Not that you've stopped because right. you haven't stopped doing well, stand-up yeah, comedy, but COVID has kind of stopped me this year. But uh, but yeah, I haven't stopped doing stand-up. What was a what's been a peak experience? Um, Def- maybe a defining moment or something like that. Well, there's, really? been, there's been a few. I mean, I would guess I, I, peak moment. There was one where I, I got I got booked to open up for David Copperfield for a TV special. Uh, it was like his warm-up act in a 10,000-seat arena. Uh, it was in Memphis. And it was got, so I got booked. They, they needed somebody to warm up the audience. He was uh, taping, taping his TV special, most of it there. And they needed somebody to warm up the audience. And I, and I was the only, I happened to be working in Chattanooga that, the week before, and they called around, and uh, that club owner, uh, Mike, um, recommended me because I can work clean to his crowd. But as far as a peak moment, it was, I'd never worked that, that was so outside my comfort zone working that big a crowd. I don't know if you have, have you ever worked like 10,000 people or, or something that Something that large? Yeah. No, I never worked, a, never yeah. worked for a crowd that large. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it, and they're there to see David Carver. They're not there to see me. You know, so, and he had all this stuff on, and it was in the round on top of that. It was, oh, wow. Yeah, it was in the round, which I've never worked before, 10,000 people, and he had all this stuff on the stage. It's not like I had the stage to myself anyway. So the first, we, we, did two, we did two tapings, two different nights. So the first night, you know, the TV director went up and told the audience, hey, we're taping, so let's everybody, he's giving everybody rules, the whole audience there's, hey, let, let, let's not walk around, we'll give you guys breaks, please no flash photography, you know, and blah, 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 all this. Here's how we're gonna do taping, and we're gonna do stuff out of order. So please be patient with us, all this stuff. So here's my intro the first night. Okay, so uh, uh, now here's a young man who has a few words to say to you. That was my intro. That's it. That's it. Not even a comic, not my name. And I walk up, and I'm you know I'm trying to you know warm up this crowd. So no one said your first entertainer for the evening. No, nothing. Here's a young man, not my name, not that I'm an entertainer. So I walk up, and I'm you know trying to warm up the crowd, and. 10,000 people looking at me like, okay, who is this guy and why does he, he think he's funny? Because they had 
and it was it was silence, and it was and I don't. That's the only time I think all the years I've been doing this, I actually got stage fright. Ah. I'm bombing in front of ten thousand people at one time, and finally they started catching on a little bit, but it took a while. I'm supposed to be like 20, 25 minutes or something, and they started catching on. And then I had a heckler, and so some guys start screaming garbage at me from one of the upper decks. I couldn't even see him, but the uh, TV guys, the lighting guys, all of a sudden all threw their Klieg lights on this guy. You know, just it was on position. the heckler on, on the heckler. So now this guy has like these ten thousand watt Klieg <laughs> lights, you know, and then the guy shrunk down. I said, yeah, not so brave now, are you? So. Uh, I remember when I went back to the hotel where we're all staying. Wow, I, that, I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, the, I bought the lighting guys. They were there. The, all the crew were all staying in the same hotel. I bought them all around a drink. So thank you, man. That was great. And the second night, uh, I almost didn't want to go back. Uh, I think most of the comics would just quit. But I said, okay, I'm getting paid well. So I went back a second night. I, I tried to re, regroup. And, and one of Copperfield's assistants, who was a road comic uh, magician, I forget his name, Chris something. But remember, uh, Chris was doing that whole uh, you know, announcements for the crowd. And I pull out, hey, hey, Chris, listen, man, I know I'm like the least important guy in this whole operation, you know, because of the TV taping. Can I ask you a question? He says, he says, the intro? I said, yeah. He says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So he went up and did the whole announcements about, hey, no walking around, no flash photography. He says, oh, and before we bring out David, I'd like to introduce David's special guest, comedian Mark Matusoff. I went up on stage completely different. At least they, knew, they had a name, they knew I was a comic, and the audience was... Now, what night was that? That was the second night of the Second night? Yeah, it was a different audience, different 10,000 Did someone people. say they were going to say, say that beforehand? No, I... Well, that's what the, uh, the guy, uh, this guy Chris, who was doing the intro to the audience that the, that the director said the night before, yeah, he took it upon himself... He did, okay. ...to say, don't worry, I got the intro for you. So that's all I had to say. You know, at least the audience knew I was a comic, I had a name, I went up there, and they were with me. And it's just, I said, thank God, because otherwise, <laughs> that, would, that, was, I was, uh, that would have been almost quit comedy experience. Wow. You know, bombing in front of 10,000 people is just something that I can't even, I can't even describe. I mean, now, I, was, I was literally... How much, was, how much time did you do? 20 to 25. 20 to 25? Yeah. No, that would have made a good... Did you get a recording of it? Uh, they said they did, but they, uh, I, never, I never got it. Yeah. Oh. I had like a B-roll, but I never got that. Yeah. Now, did you, did you get some, spend some time with David Copperfield? Uh, I never he's, spent a, some time. he's a remarkable performer. He is. And he was very nice to me. Uh, he came in during the week. I was doing some stuff there, just warming up the uh, the paid audience that was there that for uh, that we're going to be using in, in uh, uh, some of the illusions. But um, yeah, he uh, he came in. He, he actually sat and wanted to watch some of my sets during the week. Um, and you know, he's very friendly to me. Um, I wouldn't want to be. He's he, he's the people that actually work for him. He's a he's a he's a taskmaster. Everything has to be ten thousand percent perfect. Or he uh, and that's I mean that's what he gets that's why he gets paid the bucks because his show is perfect. So uh, if things are not quite perfect, he, you know, he uh, lets them know. But he was, he was not, <laughs> let me put it that way. No, he was very nice to me. I can't, I can't complain. Wow. Now, now, where was that? That was in Memphis. Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And what was, do you remember the, uh, the auditorium or the yeah, theater? Yeah, Mid-South Arena. Mid-South Arena? Yeah. Now, when was that? Uh, early 2000s. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was. I mean, looking back on at the time, I was just, yeah, I was literally sick to my stomach after the first night. But, I, you know, it's, again, it's a learning experience. It was something that was so outside my comfort zone. If I ever had to do it again, at least now we know what to expect and maybe how to play it a little bit more. Again, everything's a learning experience. If you did have it to do over again, and for some reason you had the intuition that you weren't going to have any kind of opening, would you do something different? What would you do differently? Um, if, if I was thrown with that same situation, I would, I would kind of let the audience know who I am, you know, 
hey, uh, my, guys, I don't know if you heard my name is Mark Matusoff. I'm a comic. I'm here to help warm you guys up for day. I mean, I would actually tell them. Yeah. But I didn't, I, I don't know. I, I guess I was so shocked by, I, went, <laughs> just, I was trying to explain it to them, and it was just, yeah. Yeah, I would probably do that. I would do things differently, and I would talk slower, uh, bigger. I'd make myself bigger on stage. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, a big performer, but I would do things bigger and slower for a, you know, and, and, and now I know how to work the, you know, in the round a little bit. I, you know, I didn't do, I'd never worked anything that was quite that large, but I found something similar when I worked these, these rooms that were closer to a thousand people. Yeah. You can't, it's like you can't quite use the same timing. Right. When you're working, say, a hundred people or even 200 people, the, you've got to sort of slow down so yeah. that it can actually reach everyone in the room and come back to you. Right. Right. It's a very different feel. And I tend to talk fast anyway. So for me, it's a big, you know, there was a, yeah, outside my comfort zone. I know now in, in, when I do bigger venues, um, yeah, just to, yeah, to slow it down and, and, and just be bigger on stage. Uh-huh. A little, little, little bit more physical, move around more than I normally would in a club. Now, you did some, te- you've done television too. Yeah, nothing big. I've done, you know, we, uh, we talked about that uh, show, Night shift with Kevin Ferguson. Uh-huh. Up in uh, there was a, a stand-up show that was taped up. It was it was a, it was professional. It was great. It was like a three-camera shoot in front of a live audience, and you got a really good tape out of it. It was a great experience. And I think in the early days of Comedy Central, they were selling those tapes because they didn't have a lot of content, so they were buying Kevin's tapes. So they were showing that stuff on on Comedy Central. So I could, I guess, backhandedly claim a Comedy Central credit. Ah, uh, okay. Because people saw me on there, but yeah, I did that show like four or five times. I didn't know that. So the Snickers. Yeah. The Snickers. Those, they were selling uh, clips, yeah. They were yeah. selling clips of that to Comedy Central. Right. Were they clips that were going to another show? Or was it some sort of like uh, just quick clips that they were showing on Comedy yeah, Central? Was like or was it actually going to a Well, it wasn't showing the whole show. It was, it was just like, remember they had like, um, oh, there was a show, I think uh, they, they, they were hosting shows where they just, I, I, I can't even remember the shows they had early in days, but they would just introduce clips of, uh, you know, like they'd be one-minute clips or two-minute clips of, Different comics, maybe all talking about some serious, you know, a, a theme or something. All talking about travel, or so it was just one one comic after another from all these different TV shows they got that they got rights to show, and I think uh, some of mine were being shown on there. Well, now who in all of this, who stands out for you as influence? Is it is it comedian or other? Who are some of the people that you think have been that were really influential and are influential to you? Not that I influential. I I was always a big fan of when my when my brother and I were younger. We were big fans of the Smothers Brothers. Uh huh. Not and I don't know if it influenced my act at all, but I was a big fan of the Smothers Brothers. Still am. And my brother and I we used to kind of recreate the little things when we were kids, you know, with each other. And we bought all their albums. And they had the TV show on. Uh, I think on three different networks, and uh, they got kicked off of all because they were so subversive. But it, I think if my parents understood what they were doing, they would never let my brother and I watch the show because because they were they were kind of subversive for the for the time. They're very anti-establishment, even though they look clean cut. These mothers brothers, but oh yeah, their attitude and yes. like the way they dress and everything, and even the presentation all seemed very 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 right. nice and right kind of mainstream was, and conservative. But, of, but they were lot, very irreverent. They were very irreverent. A lot of counterculture. There was a lot of yeah. subtle drug references and other things in there. My my brother and I got them because my my parents, you know, from the old country, they didn't kind of went over. Oh look at these these guys singing with the guitar and the, the bass. They're very clean cut guys. But meanwhile the I think the subversive jokes kind of went, went over my parents' head. 
Well, so for those of you who are just uh, listening now, just tuning in, um, you're listening to American Dream Time. This is uh, Robert Doc Barham show, and today I'm having a really fun conversation with my friend Mark Matusoff, who is also a stand-up comedian, and you are also a musician. Musician? I've been, excuse me, playing mandolin since I'm a kid, uh-huh. and eventually I ended up putting in my act. I close, close playing the mandolin. I do a bunch of think different things on it, just trying to have fun with it. Play musician. I've been in bands where I played uh, electric bass and sax because nobody ever needed a mandolin player. When you do stand-up, you do you use the mandolin, but do you always use the mandolin? I mean, my observation is that you usually use it towards the latter portion yeah, I, I, of a, the set. It, it's, it's something clo- you close it's a, with. It's a closing bit. But if I'm doing a short set, um, yeah, if I'm doing you know a drop-in set or a short set somewhere, yeah, I'm not you know I have plenty of material without it. You know, I don't need to do that. What now is there, because I don't use, uh, I'm not a musician that way. I mean, I play, I grew up learning to play the trumpet and the drums and that kind of thing, but I've never uh, played music on stage or integrated it into my comedy. What's the, what is it, what's it like? What's the difference? Is there a difference? Uh, well, if, as, as far as comedy goes, it, it, A, it needs to be funny as far as just playing straight music. And it needs to be, you have to be a decent musician too. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a crummy musician trying to, unless that's actually what you're trying to do, I like, I've seen that. I've seen comics, you know, play guitar who really can't play guitar, and it's it's annoying actually. When you have, yeah, I'm sure you've seen it too. You've seen guys on stage, you know, guitar acts, and they're not really good guitar players, uh, and it's it, it's almost eh, like fingernails on the blackboard. It would seem like they, you'd have to you'd have to be really gifted in the in another area, in order to make up for that. Yeah, make that it work. So the audience, of, fact, I, musicianship. I do, I, do, I do a couple things when I first pull out the mandolin because they start, you know, when I say, "Hey guys, write a rock and roll," I pull out the mandolin. And they, they, you can see the audience start rolling their eyes. But uh, and I'll, I'll do some, I'll do some, a couple of things that are highly technical. Let them know right off the bat I know how to play the thing, and that just kind of breaks the ice. And then from then on, it's you know, it's it's jokes. It's actually more of a prop because uh, I'm not a good singer, so I really don't sing much with it. Yeah, I, I always enjoyed your set. You were someone who I came back like night after night and I'd watch. Oh, that was you? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd watch your sets. I was yeah. always enjoying your yeah, sets. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. And it was a, for those of you guys who don't know, if you are, you may already know this, you can relate to this in your life, but there are people who you get along with and there are people who sometimes you don't get along with. You chafe you, yeah. and you, you just butt heads or whatever it may be. Mark is one of those guys, at least in my, in my, uh, my memory and in my experience is someone who's just very easy to get along with. And so the, the, the work itself, the week itself becomes a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable and a better memory. Yeah, I try and uh, that's the way I am. I try even, and I've worked with people I don't particularly care for, but there's no reason to, to let that get in the way. You just, you know, you do your best, you know, you don't have to be friends with somebody necessarily sometimes. Uh, remember I worked with Although it worked, I remember I was with I worked with Drew Carey for three weeks, uh, before just before he became big, and Drew was very introverted. Uh, he would he would pretty much stay in his room, wouldn't really come out. He had a video game or something. He really didn't do anything with me. And some 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 comics would take that personally, and I wouldn't. I said, okay, well that's that's the way he is. That's I don't take it personally. I just went and did my own thing. I didn't bug him. At the end of the week, I remember I was I was working for Rita down in Williamsburg, and he says, "Man, you're the best condom I ever had." And he took me out, and bought me a nice prime rib dinner because <laughs> uh, I didn't bug him, you know. And uh, so I, the other, I know other comments, "Man, what a what a jerk, man! You didn't come out and do anything with me. We didn't go play video games." So, you know, everybody's his own person. So yeah, I, I agree. I have nothing against Drew. He was, he was he was a nice guy, but he was just you know uh, very very introverted and stayed to himself. I said, "Okay, well, I respect that. You know, why should I why should I force him to do something he doesn't want to do?" 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Everybody's different. Just yeah. give them their space if they want it. If they want to hang out, they hang out. If they yeah. don't, they don't. Yeah. That kind of thing. So yeah. what do you have coming up in terms of uh, like your profession, in terms of comedy, musicianship? Well, what other things do you have going on? Because I'm, I'm noticing that we're... We've got just a couple of minutes here before we wrap sure. up, and I want to give an opportunity for you to talk well, about where you're headed in the future I and what you're doing now. I took a, uh, during this uh, time of COVID shutdowns, it took the time to finish, and I published a novel that I've been writing. Uh, it's called, ah. it's on, available on Amazon, if I can plug it. It's called uh, Green Onions. It's a uh, Green Onions, uh, Death with a Two-Drink Minimum. Uh-huh. It's a murder <laughs> mystery. It's a murder mystery set in a comedy club in Baltimore. Uh-huh. And it's gotten some good reviews, and uh, it was it was fun. It was based on a screenplay that Al Carpenter and I wrote like 25 years ago, and I just took it and you know based based on that story and wrote wrote, wrote a novel based on that, and uh, with Al's, Al's permission, his blessing, and um, and I you know uh, speaking of Al, we uh, several years ago he and I uh, were awarded a nickel fellowship in screenwriting from the Oscars. Uh huh. And we wrote a screenplay, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but we wrote apparently a really good screenplay. They out of 6,000 screenplays, they, they chose five to be uh, receive this fellowship, and we were among those five that year. And uh, it was really quite, that was, it's not standard. If you're talking about like a career or or, a, or, or a apex of things, that, that was really up there because we they flew us out to Hollywood, put us up in a, uh, a top-end hotel for a week. Uh, we got to have, you know, uh, meet all these people in the industry. We had to have an award ceremony in front of the industry. So we met all these directors and producers and, uh, uh there's a lot of heat on the script. So it was, it didn't actually get sold, but it was really, really quite an experience. Excellent. Yeah. Man of many talents, like I said. Yeah. So if, uh, I want to real quickly, one last thing, if I want to find you, I'm listening and I want to find you online, where do I go? Matusoft.com. I was going to go trying to come up with a funny joke, but it was, yeah, Matusoft.com. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, m a t u s o f dot com. Um, that's that's my website, um, and that's why I, right now there's uh, not a whole lot on the schedule. But they, but I have uh, links to some clips on YouTube and some other things on there, um, and kind of you know where I've been and what I've done. So uh, that that's if you want to find me, that's that's where to find me. Excellent. Hey, Mark, thanks for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Doc. This is a lot of fun. All right, you've been listening to American Dreamtime. I'm Robert Doc Barham. That's another show for today, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>